0: Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? So today is going to be a day. Buckle up, get ready for the ride, because we are really getting into the meat and potatoes of Galatians. So St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, if you uh, haven't joined us before. What's up? Welcome to Catholic's Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. Uh, so we are in the midst of our Bible study on the book uh, or the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians, and we are officially diving into chapter two today. Uh, and as always on Catholic's Bibles, if it's the first time joining us on the show, I usually start off with a Greek or Hebrew word of the day. 98% of the time it is a Greek word because my Hebrew is not great. Um, but every once in a while I throw one in. And so, yeah, so we're going to start with our Catholic, not Catholic, words or a thing. Start with our Greek word of the day today. So the Greek word of the day is sunisteromai. Sunisteromai is the word for crucified. Uh, and it's a certain context. It's not just past tense. We'll get to that in a little bit. So sunisteromai is the word Paul uses in Galatians 2.20 for I have been crucified with Christ. It's gonna be of, I think it's very interesting. Um just grammatically for the word, which we'll get to in a little bit once we get there. But uh, we have to get started here. We're going to briefly look at um, chapter 2, 1 through uh, 14, and then we're really going to spend a a good chunk of time uh, in the last section of chapter 2, which is chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through uh, 21, because that is really the meat and potatoes of, I mean, this letter, but also... uh, and I will say this before we officially begin. This is, you know, usually about a 20, 30 minute podcast, somewhere in that range. I intentionally make them bite sized So that way you can listen to them like on a lunch break or on a drive. And that way too, uh, I find, I find myself personally on the more academic podcast. If you're not someone who's uh, academic or I've overly studied the certain topic anything over like 30 minutes and you kind of just like your brain just starts tuning it out and that's my experience personally maybe you're more virtuous than i am and you don't tune it out i tune it out after like 30 minutes if i'm trying to listen to something i'm maybe not as well versed in so that being said i am not going to be able to be like as totally nuanced as i would like to be in this chapter Um, i'm doing this intentionally so you know, if you're listening to this and if you studied justification a lot, or at least you think you studied it a lot, if I say like a verb wrong or an adjective wrong or like a, just something, if I say something out of, out of place, I'm asking you to, you know, bear with me. Um, and I will give a few different books in the show notes as I always do um, because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books written on this idea of justification. And this is a 30 minute podcast. I won't be able to cover all of it. I'm going to give you my perspective, um, which is the new perspective on Paul that uh, Dr. John Kincaid, who's been on the show before, uh, taught me. Uh, It makes the most sense in my brain. Um, And so that's the perspective I'm going to give you, which I think is the authentic Catholic perspective uh, on on justification. And so, yeah, with all that being said, we're going to go ahead and get jumped in, uh, dive in here too, uh, versus 1 uh, through 10, uh, briefly talk about that, just to kind of give some context, uh, because this idea of justification does come with context. So remember that the the letter of the Galatians, it's to Galatia, right? It's a a province. Uh, This letter is broken up into a few different parts, and we're getting into, you know, we're in the part of defense of Paul's gospel. And this whole letter, Paul is really, he's teaching through um, narratives, right? So he's telling stories in order to back his points. It's, it's, so it's narrative argumentation. So we're in the middle of a narrative argumentation still. Um, the, in the end of chapter one, Paul was saying how his gospel was revealed to him by the son of God, Jesus Christ himself. It is divinely given. And so in this narrative argument, uh, he's going to talk about how it's not only given to him by God, but it's approved by the pillars of Jerusalem, namely Peter, James, and John. So let's dive in. So Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, we read, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a greek yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we might that we have in christ so that they might bring us into slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and from those who seemed to be influential what they were makes no difference to me god shows no partiality those i say who seemed influential added nothing to me on the contrary when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles and when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me and that we may that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. All right, cool. So in this narrative, uh, we we look at in the book of Acts as well. So a lot of scholars will say that this narrative is um, basically the the council of Jerusalem, namely Acts 15. So a lot of leading scholars, um, they look at Acts 15, and they kind of see it as a summary of a few different events that, they, that Luke kind of just condensed into one uh, story or one, uh, one uh, council. He calls it the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, anybody who's ever read anything about councils in the Catholic Church, though? No, they don't just happen in one day. And know that there's usually a lot of arguing and yelling and stuff. Uh, so Luke is just kind of condensing it uh, for the sake of his audience. And so uh, most scholars nowadays say that Paul's narrative here is referring to that moment at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, where it, the church definitively decided that no Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. It's, it's actually fascinating. You should read it. And you know, that's one of the texts we actually get papal authority from is because they argue and they talk and all of a sudden Peter stands up and gives his word and says, that's it. This is the end of the debate. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. And then from there, there was no more, there was no more debate. Once Peter spoke, it was a done deal. Right? So that's one of the texts that we can look at for uh, papal authority. But anyway, uh, so what's the situation here, right? So Paul is, is basically telling his audience, right? Because remember, the letter of the Galatians, he's defending his gospel message right now against the circumcision party, the party that basically said that to be a Christian, you had to obey the ceremonial law, uh, circumcision, dietary restrictions, and calendar, right? And Paul's arguing against that, saying no. And so at the end of chapter one, like we said, he defended his gospel, namely that it was revelation from God. So, but if that's not enough, he also has the authority of the pillars, namely Peter, James, and John, right? The pillars, uh, the, the the apostles in Jerusalem, the, dis, the disciples of Jesus Christ himself. And the thing is, he, he's saying that he didn't even need this, right? But he has it. He didn't need the authority of Peter, James, and John, um, he, but he has it anyway. So he's telling the, the, the Galatian church about it. He's like, listen, like if you don't believe that my gospel is sent from God, well, you know, I also have the authority given to me by Peter, James, and John, but I didn't even need that. I had it from God, and they totally agreed with me. They didn't add anything to my gospel, but they liked what I was doing, Um, and so Paul then has this, gives us this idea of how he is the apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter, James, and John's apostle to the Jews, and this, I'm not going to get too much into this, because I want to kind of get to the back half of this uh, chapter quickly, but this Amongst some scholars, I don't want to call them scholars. Again, some people, they, they read this as if Paul started his own church. And there, there's, this, there's two different churches and like the Catholic church being the church of Peter, James, and John. And uh, some Protestant churches, I guess, or the churches of Paul. Anyway, there is literally, I mean, if you just read this passage in context, Paul went to Peter, James, and John. And then in chapter one, he went to Peter and like got their approval so that so that his, his gospel might not be in vain, namely that all the work he's doing might not be undone or might not have been, might have been incorrect and had to, he had to go back and, and teach again, right? He literally went to Jerusalem went to the Pope, first Pope Peter, and was like, hey, like, is this kosher? Is this cool? But like, get it kosher because he's like Jewish Christian. Anyway, um, he's like, is, is this, is this orthodox? And Peter and James and John say, yeah, no, you're doing a good job. Go back to the Gentiles. You're, you're clearly sent by God to the Gentiles. Like we are sent to evangelize the, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so Paul did not start his own church. Like and apart from Peter, James, and John, he, for him, there is only one gospel, right? I mean, he says this over and over again. There is only one gospel for St. Paul. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God who was incarnated and died for our sins and offers us life in his name, right? Um, which we're gonna get to at the end of this chapter. Anyway, so just really side note, Paul, no, Paul did not start his own churches like, in separation from like the churches of, the church of Peter, James, and John because that would also defeat the purpose of like why he talks about the mystical body of Christ in 1 Corinthians so much, right? It's, it's one body, right, one body. Um, all right, cool. So not going to spend too much time on this narrative, uh, get to the next narrative, which is going to lead into then the, the nuts and bolts of this, uh, letter and also this chapter. So we're going to get into verse 11, uh, 11 through uh, 14, which is, uh, Paul opposing Peter. So we read, but when Cephas came to Antioch, which was a major like Christian hub at the time, and it's also Paul's like home base, um, I said to Cephas before them all, "If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews?" All right. So, um, a lot can be said about this passage. Basically, what happened? Peter was chilling with uh, the Gentiles after the Council of Jerusalem, where he literally declared that they know they didn't need uh, to be circumcised, the dietary restrictions, the calendar, and all these things, um, and so. Peter is hanging out with Gentiles. He's, he's having table fellowship with them. Because remember, uh, in, in before Christ, before the new law, uh, Jews weren't even allowed to enter the house of a Gentile, let alone have table fellowship with them, um, because that would make them unclean in a lot of ways. And so uh, Peter is eating with these Gentile Christians. But what happens is these the members of the circumcision party, Paul says uh, from James, um, so James is one of the pillars, but... Uh, whether or not, you know, James was part of the circumcision party or not, uh, debatable. Um, I don't think so. St. James, he's not a heretic. Anyway, even if he was part of the circumcision party, once Peter spoke, he was on team Peter, right? Peter and Paul. Um, so uh, Peter, you know, had that in situations where, you know, it's like when the cool kids come in and all of a sudden you're hanging out with the not cool kids and you're like, oh man, no, I don't like these uh, not cool kids anymore. Um, and so when Paul sees this, Paul gets really ticked off and literally confronts Peter in front of everyone. So now some people will read this and will say, "Well, see the there's no papal infallibility that, you know, there's no um, papal authority, you know, Paul, you know, confronted, you know, quote unquote, the Pope. So therefore we should and all these things. All right. So just a quick note about papal authority and papal infallibility. So the Pope is only infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. It means from the chair, which has only happened like three times in history, right? Um, And it's all been on Marian dogma stuff. So the church is infallible in matters of faith and morals, and that happens basically at ecumenical councils, right? So anytime it's an ecumenical council, uh, we know that the Holy Spirit is guiding it, and that whatever documents come forth, um, we know that they are truth, and that They're infallible matters of faith and morals. The Pope himself and his day-to-day actions and words is not infallible, right? He is not. The Popes can say dumb things. The Popes can do dumb things. They can do things that aren't totally perfect. They're human, um, and so they're not—and when you you speak from the the ex-cathedra, from the chair of Peter, um, it's like this big formal thing, right? And so Even like Pope Francis never spoke ex cathedra. Pope Benedict never spoke ex cathedra, right? Um, So it's one of those things where in this story, did Peter goof? Yeah, he done goofed real hard. And Paul was right to confront him, right? Uh, why? Why? And why is it okay for Paul to confront him publicly and not just privately? Well, it's because Peter already publicly declared that we can eat with Gentiles and they don't need to be circumcised. He, that was a public statement that everybody knew. That th- this is what uh, Peter said out loud. So therefore, because everybody knew that Peter was acting hypocritically publicly, Paul could then publicly correct it for the sake of everyone else there to, to avoid scandal. Right. So Paul didn't do this because he was didn't like Peter. Paul didn't do this to you know uh, you know usurp the authority of the Pope. Paul didn't do this to make Peter look bad. He did this for the sake of everyone else there, and for Peter's own sake too, for, the, for their salvation, right? To, to avoid scandal, um, and praise God, he did. Okay, so with all that said and done, we then transition into fifteen through twenty-one, which is really the meat and potatoes. So we a lot of times Bibles, um, if they break up your sections, this is like it looks like a quote unquote new section. But remember a couple of things. One, the Bible didn't even have verses up until like 500 AD, right? So verses were added in arbitrarily a little bit later by a monk. Um, and so this passage, this next passage, 15 through 21, we read in context as this is basically what Paul told told Peter at that feast. But he's also kind of rewording it in a little bit for his Galatian audience, right? So the, the this. Next passage 15 through 21 is addressed to Peter first and then also to us, right? The Galatian churches and us. Um, and this this next section is the theme is justification, right? This is I mean this is the theme, hands down. Nobody really argues that point. This is the theme, it's justification. And this is basically Paul's thesis of the gospel. This is like his thesis statement. 15 through 21, if you want like, What is Paul, what's the gospel according to Paul? Which Paul has been, you know, defending, saying he got it from God, approved by Peter, James, and John. What is it? Here it is, right? He's been telling these stories, building up to it. All right, so let's dive into it now. I'll read the whole thing, and then we got to kind of define some terms, and then we're going to look into it. Like I said, we won't be able to just go through it with a fine-tooth comb, but I'll give you uh, what I think is an authentically Catholic reading of this text. So let's read it. 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, so I mean, there's just tons here, right? I mean, literally entire books have been written on this passage. Um, so I do want to lay down some, um, some defining, I want to define our terms, right? I want to define our terms, and then we'll look back at the text. So the three terms I, I want to define, which will help us to read this text well, is justification and righteousness. So like, it's basically the same word in Greek, so that's why I'm, I'm combining those two. So justification, faith, and works of the law. So these are, are three hot-button words that, I mean, we have to define our terms here, what, what we understand these words to mean. Uh, because a lot of the times, part of the reason that, that Catholic and Protestant dialogue breaks down is because we literally just define our terms differently. Right, and, and and that's why it, nothing we say makes sense to each other a lot of the times. So, we'll start with works of the law, then faith, and then we'll do justification and righteousness. So, works of the law we've talked about this. It, it's you know, um, it's this idea of uh, the ceremonial or rituary, ritual boundary markers, right? Ceremonial works of the law, circumcision, dietary restrictions, calendar, um, in what's called the uh, the old tradition, which is funny because it's not amongst some, amongst Pauline scholars is like Luther's approach to this, even though it's funny because Luther didn't come to like 1500 years after Christ, whatever. Anyway, um, the way Luther and like Calvin would interpret works of the law would be like any works done by man. So that includes like the 10 commandments, any kind of moral actions, any, anything, any, anything that a man does that's works, right? Works. Um, like the like i said new new interpretation of paul which is basically just the catholic interpretation which is like the super old interpretation i guess um that's not how we read that right we we read uh, as the ceremonial boundary markers right um why because it, it doesn't make any sense for paul just reading paul like at face value he says elsewhere that what you do matters right now paul paul would say for sure that you don't take the first step, right? That that God takes the first step. It's the primacy of grace through faith, right? God makes the first step. It's a response on our part, right? It's a response. Um, and so, because the, the two kind of boundary markers, right? I think we've talked about this before. but I'll say it again. Um, there's Pelagian on one, Pelagianism on one side and Calvinism on the other. Pelagian Pelagius said that we take the first step, and then God, seeing our goodwill or good actions, gives us the grace we need for salvation. Boom, no, heresy, can't do that. All right, we do not take the first step God does. Now, on the other extreme, we have Calvin. And Calvin taught that you have no say in your salvation. You're either going to heaven or hell. It's all up to God, pre, pre, you know, double predestination, all these things. Uh, sorry for your luck, Chuck. Nothing you can do to stop it, right? So um, that's, that's the other extreme. And the church says, nope, that's, that's, that's not right either. So the answer is somewhere in the middle and here's the catch, and this is what's, I think, frustrating for some Catholics, is that the church has never definitively defined the, the, you know, the answer. It's like, what, okay, what can we articulate some kind of formula And the church? The church hasn't done it, and I really don't think the church ever will. Uh, It's a bit of a, it's part of the Christian mystery, Um, and, you know, but, you know, amongst, like, Catholics, we have, like, the Jesuits on one side and uh, the Dominicans on the other. Uh, I'm a Thomist, so, like, I think they're super right and the Jesuits are super wrong. And that's basically what I think about everything. Um, Jesuits are, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, can with some of their theology uh, these days, but anyway, not going to get into that. Um, so, um, and, and so the Jesuits, you know, in the Dominicans, they're both within the boundary markers of they're not plagianist, not plagianists They're not Calvinists, um, even though the other accuses the other of being that thing. Right. Um, so, you know, Jesuits kind of lean more on the, more of uh, on us, you know, Dominicans lean more on like, you know, the primacy of grace through faith. Um, I'm obviously a Thomist. I'm a, I'm a Jesuit. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Jesuit. I'm a Thomist. I'm a Dominican. So I, I like St. Thomas Aquinas' approach to it, which is the primacy of grace through faith that calls for our response to God's uh, salvific work in us through the Holy Spirit. Um, and that was kind of a mouthful. But anyway, um, so works of the law. We're going to leave it at that. Uh, Then we have the idea of faith, and we've talked about this definition in our brief uh, introduction to the letter of uh, of St. Paul to the Romans. So if you want a little bit more uh, details, you can go back and listen to that. But what I mean by faith and what we have to understand by faith isn't just intellectual assent, right? Um, That is part of it. Part of having faith is intellectually assenting to the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is the son of God and he rose from the dead. That is an intellectual assent. But there's also an idea of faith. Faithfulness. So I'm faithful means I'm loyal, right? It's loyalty. So I'm faithful, right? So I have intellectual assent. I'm loyal, but I'm also uh, trust, right? I'm I have faith that God's promises will be will be uh, made, right? That God will keep His promises. So it's intellectual assent. It's faithfulness. It's loyalty on my part, right? To respond to the grace, and it's also trust that God will uh, make His promises come true. Um, so. Faith is not just about intellectually. It's not just, it's not I'm all about saying, oh, I believe, and then y'all, you're saved, right? It's like, no, it's, that's a very shallow understanding of, of faith, pistis in Greek. Um, all right, justification, which is what we're getting into. So justification, right? It, it's not a purely legal situation, right? It's, that's not what it is. Um, Luther, Calvin, a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, they see it as a, kind of this like divine courtroom where you are guilty of all these sins and you are rightly deserving of hell, but then God as the divine judge declares you innocent based on the merits of Jesus Christ's son. And therefore because God declares you innocent, you are. And so it's, it's a, this idea of a legal fiction, right? You're not actually innocent, but God says you are. So therefore you are right. It's the whole, like you're a dung heap covered in snow, Luther approached. Right. Um, uh, and so that's not, that's not it, right? It's not, God can't lie. Um, and so it isn't, we don't, we don't believe that justification is about legal fiction. You know, you are a sinner, but then God says you're not. And then therefore you're not right. It's, God is not creating a legal fiction. That's not what St. Paul teaches. Um, rather I think, and this is other scholars as well. It's not just me. It's, it's new interpretive of Paul. It's also just the church justification I think it should be understood as a restoration of right covenant relationship, right? Because remember, God came to make us family, right? We were made to be sons and daughters of God. But that relationship was broken through sin, right? And so Jesus Christ was made man so that man may be united with Christ, right? Maybe united with God. And so it's Jesus came to restore right covenant relationship that was broken through our sin. And so to be justified is to be restored into a right covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so it's a transformative and it's a participatory participatory, uh, relationship, right? And there's so much that can be said about this. Like I said in the beginning, not nowhere being nuanced enough. And there's so much to be said. Uh, Look at the books in the show notes um, if you want to dive in more on this. Um, So going back into the text it is we need to look at this, right? Why why am I saying all this? Well, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, not made righteous by works of the law, right? And that's true, right? Because if somebody was made just, and justified, put in right covenant relationship by works of the law, then Jesus never would have needed, needed to come, right? If the works of the law, namely the ceremonial boundary markers, if that was enough, then Jesus died in vain, as St. Paul says later, right? And this is what's interesting about how you can translate this text too, is this next part. But through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So my Bible even says uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. But in the Greek, it's, it's it's a bit vague. It could be the faith of Jesus Christ or faith in Jesus Christ. So this matters. Why? Because one implies something you are doing. You have faith in Jesus Christ. The other implies Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of him right? And what's, how was Jesus Christ faithful? How did he prove his faithfulness? Through the cross. Through the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus proved his faithfulness, his loyalty, and his trust through the cross, right? So the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith, once again, of christ we are justified by the faith of christ which what is that it's the cross and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified paul is saying this over and over again the ceremonial law was not enough right jesus christ had to come verse 17 but if in our endeavor to be justified in christ we too were found to be sinners is christ then a servant of sin Meganoita in Greek, of course not, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, right? Because our salvation comes in and through our response to the grace given to us by Christ. Well, how did Christ prove his faithfulness? Through dying on the cross, so what, what do we do then? Well, we have to participate in that death. We have to be co-crucified with Christ. That, and that's actually what this Greek says. For I have been crucified with Christ. I have been co-crucified with Christ. That's that Greek word. And what's fascinating, going back to that Greek word of the day, this Greek word, sunestorumai, it's in the passive voice, in the perfect tense. So if you know anything about uh, Greek, passive voice means that it's something that's happening happening to me. So I'm receiving this, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's also in the perfect tense. What does that mean? Perfect tense is something that happened in the past, but that has present consequences. So through the grace of God, I have received crucifixion in Christ, past tense, yet it's affecting me now. I have been crucified with Christ. How is it affecting me now? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I've received this co-crucifixion through the grace of God. And what's it doing right now? It's empowering me to live with Christ. Christ now lives in me. The life I now live is in the flesh. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God. So here's the deal, y'all. Luther says you are a pile of poop covered in snow. No, that's not what St. Paul says. That's not what the church says. Christ says that you are saved through him, through, through your faith in him, through your response to the grace given by God. So truly, we're being crucified with him, co-crucified. It's about cruciformity, about conforming your life to be a gift as Christ gave on the cross. So that one day God will look at you when you die and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are my son. He will see the son in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's not going to be a legal fiction, y'all. It's not going to be God lying and being like, oh yeah, you're, you're a sinner, awful person, but you know what? You're good. So I'm going to ignore all that stuff and just look at my son. No, it's, that's not it. He's going to look at you for and truly see you as someone who's been conformed to the image of his son. He's going to see his son in you. And it's not that you stop existing. It's not like you use your, lose your identity or personhood. No, rather, the glory of God is man fully alive. You will be who you're truly meant to be. So a lot more, I mean, a lot more could be said, y'all. I'm sorry if I wasn't super nuanced in a lot of ways, but there's so much that could be said. And uh, so I hope this was helpful at least, right? And hopefully this piqued your curiosity in a lot of ways. I encourage you to keep studying. Let me know if you have any questions. love to answer them. And remember that you are, you're truly sons and daughters of God. Uh, Christ, God became man so that man may become, become God, right? Not that we become other gods, but uh, listen to that podcast with Dr. Kincaid if you want a little bit more of that. So anyway, Hope this helpful. Hope this was insightful. Um, Galatians 2, it's awesome. It's beautiful. Our God is so good, y'all. And we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. All right, y'all, that was a lot, but it was really fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, share us with your friends and family, and we'll see you next time. God bless.